2: There's a tendency for Christians to think the sexual revolution and the problems of the sexual revolution are the fault of them out there, those out there. I want to suggest that expressive individualism is something that pervades culture in general, and Christians are as much a part of that. And we have to reflect critically on our complicity in that as anybody else, even in the sexual revolution, I would say. No-fault divorce is a perfect example of the triumph of the modern self working itself out in the culture. Hmm. How many churches have taken no-fault divorce seriously? So I think first thing I would say is, yep, this modern self has triumphed, and the first thing Christians need to do is acknowledge their complicity.
1: Well, as we cross over into February and with Valentine's Day not that far away, the focus of the month is love, right? And yet there is an increasingly broken understanding as to what love is. Welcome to Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons. For this weekend, I'm Paul Perot from Faith Radio with Gabe. Now, let's think together. This problem with love is not just an oversexualizing of it that leads to an emptying of sexuality. Remember that song by Tina Turner, What's Love Got to Do With It? Or even the lack of commitment that we see with the rampant issue of divorce. Today, we want to return to a conversation around what has been called a worldview of expressive individualism. It has led to many things, like the idea one can think they were born in the wrong body and that the most authentic thing that person can do is to transition. Or, as we heard at the start, issues around policies like no-fault divorce. It all goes deep beyond the sexual revolution into the deeper cultural influences of the last 300 years or more. Gabe, today we're going to hear a presentation that was first part of the 2021 Culture Summit. Now, the Culture Summit is something that you and the Q team host in Nashville every spring. Gabe, set up today's conversation for us.
0: We're going to have today John Tyson, pastor of Church of the City, New York, and an an author and a leader who's been a part of the Q Ideas community for many years interviewing Carl Truman. Now, Dr. Carl Truman is the author of the book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Now, this is one of those books where you hear that title and you might not know what what is this all going to be about. And what I want to encourage you is so many leaders that I've met have handed this book to me, have said, have you read this book? This is one of the most important books a Christian leader could understand because it gives us the context, the history, the way we got here. And so many times we show up in a cultural moment and we're trying to navigate it. We're trying to figure it out it's very confusing. And the clarity starts to come when you just can look back and you can go, oh, this is how we got to the rise of the modern self and how we think about ourselves. Now, when you read that book, you're you're left with you're struggling with some things. You, you start to understand, man, we are in a bit of a predicament now. We're in a difficult, challenging moment, what will leadership look like? And in this conversation, Carl Truman and John Tyson for 18 minutes have a dialogue that's just so encouraging that both summarizes some of the ideas that are part of that book, but actually takes us even further. It moves us into these are the solutions. This is where we can go from here. This is where we can start to create a new kind of culture and we can start to create community that invites people to move beyond the individualism that maybe has become such a marker of their life and move into something that's so much more gratifying and life-giving and a part of how God's designed community to work. And so right now, let's listen in to John Tyson and Carl Truman.
3: Uh, we have the privilege of hearing from uh, Dr. Carl Truman, professor of biblical and religious studies at Grove City College, written several books, your latest book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, Cultural Amnesia, Expressive Individualism, and the Road to Sexual Revolution, devotional reading. (laughs) You have an MA in classics from the University of Cambridge, a PhD in church history from the University of Aberdeen, and uh, thank you so much for being here today. And of all the books I've read in, in the last few years, I felt this book contained the most explanatory power of what it's like to lead in this particular time of history. So you trace hundreds of years of thought, sociology, and philosophy, and you put it all together. And I would encourage you to read this book. It's one of those rare ones that accomplishes what 10 other books do individually, all in one. What I love about it the most is that it's actually very, very practical for pastors and pastoral ministry because you're getting to the sense of angst that a lot of people have felt about why things have changed so much. It feels very, very different than ministry as normal, particularly around the idea of identity. And so I was wondering if you could open with talking about the idea of how a sense of self has changed. The way people view themselves in culture these days is different than other generations. So could you perhaps map out the modern sense of the self and then how that's changed over time from different generations?
2: Yeah, I would summarise the modern sense of the self as being that which prioritises inner feelings, inner psychological sense uh, over pretty much everything else. That who you are, what you think life is about, where you see the satisfactions in life lying as being an internal or inner psychological state. And In the book, to try to to draw a contrast or to to make this clear by way of contrast, I compare myself to my grandfather. My grandfather was, uh, uh, he left school at 14. He worked as a sheet metal worker in Birmingham, the Detroit of uh, uh, the United Kingdom, for 50 50 plus years. And if he was on stage now and I say, you know, granddad, uh, did you get job satisfaction? I think my grandfather's answer would be, yes, I, I was paid a fair day's pay for an honest day's work. I was able to put bread on the table for my wife and children, and I was able to clothe them. I was able to meet my obligations. Mm. If you ask me that question, uh, Truman, do you get job satisfaction? My answer is more likely to be cast in a psychological tone. It's more likely to be something to the effect of, I get a real buzz out of teaching. Mm. What I do gives me an intrinsic psychological stimulus. Mm. I love being in front of a class of kids and explaining a difficult concept and seeing the light bulbs go on Mm. as they grasp what I'm saying. Mm. And if you contrast those two, I think there's a sense in which my grandfather and I live in two different worlds. Mm. For my grandfather, his sense of self was outwardly directed. Mm. His satisfaction came from what he was able to do and accomplish for other people. Mm. For me, my sense of satisfaction comes from how my life serves, for want of a better term, my own emotional or sentimental interests. It's a long story as to how we've got there. I think it starts, uh, one could argue, it starts sort of in the Reformation. Mm. But what we've seen really in the last 20 or 30 years is a dramatic acceleration Mm. of what I would call this sort of psychologizing process when it comes to the notion
3: of of the self. So your book is called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. So you're making the case this psychological internal sort of uh, view of the self has won okay so it's, it's triumphed over other versions of the self so what does it does it does it really matter is this just a generational change are there real and significant implications for followers of Jesus regarding discipleship and mission Sure, I think
2: there are, as you say, real and significant implications. One of them is, I think, uh, this is not an entirely bad development. Mm. Human beings are emotional creatures. We are our psychology to some extent. Uh, I played rugby at school and uh, I didn't play it very well, but uh, you know, I got kicked around a bit on the rugby field and I got physically hurt. I got a scar over my one eye. I barely remember that stuff. Mm. I do remember Insults that were directed at me or harsh words that were said. I remember with embarrassment harsh words I said to other people. Mm. We're aware that our psychology is important. Mm. And I think expressive individualism captures a deep truth about what it means to be a human being. If I look out of the window and I see uh, a crime being committed and I feel nothing in response to that, Mm. I see an old lady being mugged and I have to Google, what do I do when an old lady is being mugged? I don't feel that I need to reach out and help her. Then we'd say there's something wrong with me. So Mm. first of all, I'd want to say the triumph of the modern self is not an entirely bad thing. Mm. I think, though, there are two things where it particularly impinges on Christianity or where Christians need to be particularly aware. One, I think there's a great tendency in our current moment to adopt an us and them attitude, particularly relevant to the sexual revolution, which is the ultimate focal point of my book. And there's a tendency for Christians to think the sexual revolution and the problems of the sexual revolution are the fault of them out there, those out there. I want to suggest that expressive individualism is something that Pervades culture in general and Christians are as much a part of that Mm. and we have to reflect critically on our complicity in that as anybody else, even in the sexual revolution. Mm. I would say no-fault divorce is a perfect example of the triumph of the modern self working itself out in the culture. Mm. How many churches have taken no-fault divorce seriously? Mm. So I think first thing I would say is Yep, this modern self has triumphed and the first thing Christians need to do is acknowledge their complicity, do some soul searching and some repentance Mm. on this front. Secondly, I would say anybody, and you'll know this better than I will, John, I was only a pastor for a few years, but anybody who's been in pastoral ministry will know the chaos that the sexual revolution which is a function of the modern self, mm. has wreaked mm. on congregations, on young people, middle-aged people, old people. And I think the triumph of the modern self has been bad news because it has facilitated and fueled the sexual revolution. And our churches are full of people who've been horrendously damaged mm. by
3: that. One of the things that was so surprising about this book is you have like a, a pretty robust critique and analysis of how we've got here. But you don't have a sky is falling, the end is near sort of approach, which is very, very rare. Normally these very controversial uh, issues are pushed out as this is the death of Western culture. We are at the very end. You say in the book, this is not a book of lament. Can you unpack why when many other people who reach the same sort of conclusions as you do it with a completely different tone? Why not a lament rather than just observations?
2: That's an interesting question. Um, I mean, lamentation is certainly an appropriate Response Mm. of Christians to the world in which they find themselves. And no Christian has ever lived in a world which is as it should be. Mm. That's the nature of the fallen world. The Psalms are full of laments. Lamentation is an appropriate response. But I think lamentation can sometimes bleed over into self-indulgence. We can think that by lamenting the culture we are in, we're somehow doing something. Mm. And I would say not necessarily. Not necessarily, we can fool ourselves into thinking we're being very faithful if we merely lament the world in which we're in. I'm going to quote Karl Marx again probably later on, but I'm always intrigued by Marx's comment that, you know, the philosophers describe the world, the purpose is to change it. Mm. And I think lamentation can make us rather impotent in terms of how we think about the people and the world around us. Mm. Secondly, my view of the triumph of the modern self is, is it a decline from the past? One could make that case, but I'm more inclined to say, no, it's just a different... We live in a different world now Mm. than all my parents lived in. Mm. My father's earliest memories were being carried down uh, by his parents to the bomb shelter Mm. at the bottom of his garden in Birmingham Mm. because the Luftwaffe were trying to kill him on a nightly basis. Mm. I don't want to live in Birmingham in 1941. Mm. Uh, I don't want to live in America in 1968-72 when there's a draft and people being taken to Vietnam. I I, I want to suggest that the world today is not going to hell in a handcart any more than the world of of yesterday was. So I would suggest we go wrong when we start to think of the world as being so much worse now than it was the day before yesterday. Mm. I facetiously say to students in class, you know, any world without antibiotics, painkillers and flush toilets is worse than the world we live in. So I think the, adi- the idea that we're in a, in a moment of dramatic cultural decline doesn't wash for me. Mm. Secondly, I would say, I mean, and you, you, you've experienced this, John, uh, you and I are immigrants. We grew up in cultures where even the church 40 years ago, when I was growing up, when you were growing up, in the cultures we emerged from, was more marginal than it is in yeah. America today. Yeah. And so... Things in America are actually comparatively good, mm. even with all the problems we have, mm. I think, compared to, to what they might be. Mm. So I think lamentation is its an appropriate thing to do in order to remind yourself that this world is ultimately not the Christian's home. Mm. But I think one has to be careful that it doesn't lead you to a distorted view of precisely what's going on at this moment in time and lead to a feeling of panic, impotence, despair... Mm. God's still sovereign. The promises, as far as I know, are still valid. The gates of hell will not prevail. There's no excuse for
3: Christians despairing in this particular moment. I heard one commentator... Yeah. I heard one commentator say that uh, some parts of the Christian church are prone to what he called panic attacks. If you've ever experienced a panic attack, it's horrific. You have the sense that your life is under threat. And it feels viscerally, psychologically, emotionally real. But if you go to an emergency room and you're experiencing, they're going to actually do an analysis on how you're doing and say, this doesn't match. Your feelings don't match the reality of what's happening in your body. And it reminds you that in some sense that evangelicals are having panic attacks right now about the actual state of the world that doesn't match the reality of the rule and reign in Jesus and the hope. That we're going to be in so you addressing that I think is very helpful one of the things you say is actually this could be a moment filled with opportunity for the church so yeah there's been shifts there's been change there are some things that are improvements some things that are decline with the rise of the modern self but this is a time ripe with opportunity for the church what are some of those opportunities from your perspective
2: I think the the greatest opportunity is is the possibility of be, building strong Christian community at this time again you 're an immigrant i 'm an immigrant one of the you 've probably never been more Australian than you are when you 're in america i 've never been more English than, than when I live in because i 've become acutely aware of my, my yeah. culture and my background because i 'm in a culture that is not my culture. One of the things that fascinated me researching this book was. How has the LGBTQ plus movement become so successful? It's an interesting question. And it struck me that it's become successful precisely because it was marginal. Mm-hmm. Precisely because the LGBTQ plus people lived on the margins. And you can look back to say the Jews in medieval Europe on that. Mm-hmm. Or in my own homeland, you could look at the non-conformists, the non-Anglicans in the 19th century. The Quakers become captains of industry. Mm-hmm. They have a strong community because they're excluded from the establishment. I don't look forward to being marginalized as a Christian in the United States. I don't. My life might become a little more uncomfortable. I don't see major persecution coming. I mean, I'm in my 50s. I don't see major persecution coming in my lifetime, but I suspect my life could be made a little more uncomfortable. But that's an opportunity. Mm. That's an opportunity for regrouping. It's an opportunity for developing strong community. It's an opportunity for developing a strong Christian identity. Not a Christian nationalist identity. I, I, I heard the, uh, the talk uh, just now, but a proper church-based mm. Christian identity. And I think we squander this moment if, if we simply wish we could go back to the 60s or the 50s or the 1900s or whatever. We squander the moment if we don't see this as, as an opportunity. You know, if you play cards, you don't choose the hand of cards that you're dealt. Mm. But you use that hand of cards as an opportunity. And I would Mm. say, that's the moment for the church now. Mm. What comes out of being marginal? Mm. Strong community. Mm. What does Jesus say? By this will all men know that you are my disciples, by the love you have for each other, by the strong community that you are. Mm. So I would say, let's lament and then let's move on to making this a time for strong communities. Mm.
3: In the book, you talk a lot about how secular or modern identities are formed. Mm. And Christians talk about identity all day long. (laughs) And yet, we seem to have the most fragile, susceptible identities to cultural ideologies of almost anybody. What are we doing wrong in Christian identity formation? And how do we get better at it? I think lack of community.
2: And that may look different in different places. One of the things that strikes me about the rise of identity politics, and, and a lot of people, a lot of conservative people, decry identity politics as trivial or the politics of resentment or something like this. Again, I, to quote Marx for the second time, mm. you know, when Marx is talking about religion, Marx makes a comment. Everybody knows Marx says religion is the opium of the people. But that occurs in a, in a larger paragraph, and Marx says Religion's actually a cry of pain, Hmm. but the pain is real. And the point he's making there is uh, religion's false. He doesn't believe in God. He doesn't believe in religion. But he believes in the reality of the problem that religion's trying to address, Hmm. the pain of people. And I think when we look at the, you know, when I look at the United States in in my time here, in the 20 years I've been here, it's like a different country to the one that I I emigrated three three weeks before 9-11, and everything changed in 9-11. And I think now, as I look look at the world we're in, we've seen the rise of dramatic identity politics. Uh, Gender, race, sexuality would be the three big ones. Mm. Uh, Why have they emerged at this point? Well, in some ways, the old ways of identity, uh, simplistically put, but one could say, family, church, and nation, Mm. have all entered a period of crisis or chaos or become much weaker. And that's created a vacuum, but people still need to belong, Mm people still want to know who they are. We love being free, but freedom's not enough. We want to be something, belong to something bigger than ourselves. One could almost put it bluntly and say, we want to live as if there's something worth dying for bigger than ourselves. And I think that's where identity politics comes in. Identity politics is providing that. Now, I think that's, I, I think that's a, a blind alley. I think it's a wrong way to go. But it's a cry of pain, and I think the pain is real. And I think the church needs to take that seriously. When we think about identity politics, don't engage so much in the the detail of what's going on, but think about the phenomenon and what it signifies. Mm -hmm. Bringing back then to the question you've asked is, well, how do we answer that? If identity politics is ultimately the result of a crisis or a collapse in traditional forms of belonging and traditional forms of identity, then the church needs to be a strong community, If your identity is grounded in the strongest community to which you belong, then the church needs to be the strongest community to which you belong. So what does the church need to do? I come from a very doctrinal tradition. I don't lie awake at night worrying that the Orthodox Presbyterian church is is going off the rails doctrinally. But I do worry that my denomination has not emphasised community. Community. And love and mm. fellowship mm. as much as it might have done, and I can only speak for my own denomination. I I can't speak for your church or for others, but what I would like to see uh, coming in in the near future is churches thinking, yeah, it's not just about doctrine; it's about belonging as well, and not setting them in opposition to each other. It's often done mm. in church history, mm. but realizing we need to build community even as we emphasise the truth of the gospel.
3: Mm. Well, thank you so much for uh, your own story and the work you put into this book. If you haven't had a chance to pick it up yet, I would encourage you to read it. Read it slowly. Read it thoughtfully. It has tremendous explanatory power for how to live on mission with Jesus now. And thank you so much for sharing some time with us today. Let's give you a round of applause. Thank you. Thank you
2: very much.
0: Well, I knew you would enjoy hearing that conversation and that dialogue, and you would be encouraged, encouraged that the solutions to some of what we're faced with gets back to some very simple things. I love how Carl says, I don't look forward to being marginalized as a Christian in the United States, but that's an opportunity. That's an opportunity for regrouping. It's an opportunity for developing strong community. It's an opportunity for developing a strong Christian identity. And his encouragement and John's encouragement, right, to get into the church. It's The church is where we belong. This is where we need to find... Our place.
1: Yeah, so true. Well, again, this is Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons. And again, the talks and conversations of the culture summits are so good, so insightful. And it's great having friends like John Tyson, who you just heard talk to Carl, also have an important talk himself. In fact, let's go back to that 2021 culture summit where John talked about leading faithfully, even amidst a challenging and exhausting cultural moment. We have a few minutes, so let's hear just a segment of his talk entitled Faithfulness over influence
3: what we actually need is godly differentiation this means that we within ourselves know him to whom we are called therefore we're freed from the need of the affirmation of the people and we can love them when things are hard how do you cultivate godly differentiation Well, when we look at the life of Jesus, we see three things. Number one, he had a profound sense of rooted identity. He just knew whose he was. And Christians talk about identity all the time, as I mentioned first thing this morning, because we're so bad at embodying it. Identity is the point of the start of the best satanic attack in your life. Jesus, after the Father says to Him, this is My beloved Son who I love and I'm well pleased. While His hair is wet from the waters of baptism, Satan is attacking His identity. If you really are the Son of God, do this, do this, do this, do this. And Jesus has to do identity resistance. So we may have to make sure that we're rooted profoundly in this.
1: We have to know that we belong to Him. again, that was John Tyson, pastor of the Church of the City, New York, and a portion of his Q Talk from the 2021 Culture Summit. Now, if you've never been to a Culture Summit, maybe this is the year for you. Visit qideas.org slash 2023. There, you can find out all the information you need for the 2023 Culture Summit, April 27th and 28th in Nashville. This is the 17th annual Culture Summit. As always, the event features talks and breakout sessions around our engagement as Christians, not only in the church, but also outside the church in business, government, education, media and the arts, science and technology, and the social sector. All this this year built around the important theme of building resilient communities. There are still some tables available for you to join the event in person in Nashville, but you and your team or a group of friends can join virtually, or maybe your church would like to be a local host site. Check out the list of speakers, which, by the way, continue to grow and will over the next few weeks and get registered. Again, you can do that all at qideas.org slash 2023. Again, qideas.org slash 2023. Again, we hope you're a part of the uh, Culture Summit this year. I'm Paul Perot. Thanks again for spending time with us this week on Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons. On behalf of Gabe, have a blessed week and we hope you listen again next time.